This is an ABC podcast. Hello from David Rutledge. Welcome to the Philosopher's Zone, where this week we're taking on the very troubling, but also from a philosophical perspective, very interesting issue of informed consent. You know how it goes. Every time you buy an app or sign on to a social media platform, you have to give your consent to certain terms and conditions that have to do with privacy and the use of your data. And those terms and conditions are presented to you in an electronic document that's way too long to read. So you just tick the box that says you've accepted the terms and conditions and get on with your day. And in doing this, you're in the company of about 94% of Australians. This is known as express consent. It means you've clearly indicated that you're okay with what's going on. But is it informed consent? Informed consent would mean that you had closely read and understood the terms and conditions, but it was estimated in 2008 that if the average internet user read all of the privacy policies that they were presented with in one year, it would take about 76 working days to get through them. So you can maybe feel a bit better about not reading all those consent forms that you click on. But in the meantime, of course, websites and apps and Google and YouTube and social media that you're using, they're all tracking you and monitoring your online habits and doing God knows what with all that data. So how worried should we be about the cluelessness of our supposedly informed consent? I think in order to answer that question, we have to really go back to, say, the philosophical foundations of informed consent and why it's so important in the first place. That's Adam Andreotta. He's a lecturer and researcher in philosophy at Curtin University in Perth, and he's speaking with Jacqueline Bokes. What I thought we could do is maybe say a little bit about why it's important in, say, the medical uh, context. And then from there, we can see how it's important in, say, other kinds of contexts, such as big data use. So what is informed consent um, in the medical context? Well, I've got a quote here from um, Tom Beauchamp, and I'm going to read it just to kind of give us a bit of uh, an insight into that. And he says that a person gives informed consent if and only if the person with substantial understanding and in substantial absence of control by others intentionally authorizes a health professional to do something. So think about why informed consent is so important uh, in the medical context. Well, first of all, it's got to do with autonomy and respect for a person. If you're getting, say, a triple bypass surgery, uh, the doctor will make sure that they outline the risks of the procedure, and in doing so, they give you a choice, right? You can either get the procedure or not. Um, And you're being respected as a person, right? Because the doctor just doesn't go ahead and does the procedure. I mentioned risks, which is really important as well, because if getting a triple bypass is, say, very risky, there's a chance of death, and there are several other kinds of procedures, then you should be made aware of those. Um, The patient can say, that's too risky, I'm not going to go for it. And so you feel like you're part of the conversation, right? Um, You don't just wake up one day and say, ah, the triple bypass was the one that was selected. I I trust the doctor. Obviously, trust is important, but we want to make sure that the the person has that autonomy and they are respected as a person. Um, And the fourth thing I think which is really important here is an understanding um, of what's actually going on. When you get, a let's say, a triple bypass or another kind of procedure, the communicative element, the respect for persons, all those kinds of things mean that you have some sort of understanding about what's going on. And so you feel that you are informed about the risks, and that's why you consent. And again, we might have a look at how this has evolved over time because it certainly didn't just come down in the last five years. Um, If we think about, say, a very famous Hippocratic Oath and the do no harm, 
But when we actually look at this um, kind of maxim, which is actually very important, informed consent is not the, the whole thing here. You can do no harm, and this relates very nicely to the doctor's knows best kind of paradigm without really getting the patient's kind of advice. I might say, I'm the doctor, I know what's best, the triple bypass procedure is the best, I'm not going to do any harm, and that's how we're going to do it. But of course, this has evolved um, over time with some s- a series of actually quite a few events here. So we think about, say, the last 70 years, for instance, um, and what's happened. So of course, we know about the horrors of World War II. Um, and after World War II, we had the Nuremberg Code, which was first developed uh, in 1947, following the Nazi doctor's trial. And of course, after all the atrocities of World War II and some of the things that the Nazis did, there was a real focus on getting voluntary consent um, from, from patients before undertaking um, kinds of procedures. Another declaration uh, in the Declaration of Helsinki, first adopted in the 1960s, which really focused on informed consent, but also looked at, say, recognizing vulnerable people that maybe can't give consent, and so the important relationship between patient and doctor. In 2023, in the past few years, of course, we have many governing bodies. Um, there's a few in Australia that give advice to general practitioners that talk about communicating risks to patients. And so if we look at, say, the past 100 years and the changes that have occurred in the past, say, 50 years or so, there's a real focus now on getting informed consent, not just doing what's best for the patient, but actually making sure they come along uh, with the journey with you, making sure they're understood the risks. And this is different from just saying, do you want to get a dripple bypass? Yes. Now, when we compare this to, say, big data use and all the issues of privacy we mentioned, there's really nothing like this at the moment. And I think that is really quite a problem um, since we see an asymmetry between, say, medical use of informed consent and, say, in the big data world. Yeah, it's an interesting comparison that you make. And it sounds like, if I can ask you to clarify, it sounds like what you're saying is that over time, the harms come about historically as a public or as a community, we become aware of those harms. We start to think about the harms that could be done. And then we put in place protections and principles in order to protect against those harms. Is it fair to say that you think the same thing might be happening with invasions of our privacy at the moment and potential harms that could be done there? Yeah, I think that's right. And it's also important to, I mean, two things I think we want to say there. I think that's right. We do want to identify what those harms are, but we maybe want to be clear about they're not always going to be the same harms. And so I think it's important for me to say a few things about the kinds of harms that it can come about from this kind of use. Because certainly with a triple bypass or let's say leg amputation or something like this, there's a great potential for the patient to be harmed in a very physical kind of way. Now, when it comes to misuses of data, we might not lose limbs or you might not be harmed in the same way, but there certainly are potential harms that can be caused. So it's important for me to say a few things about um, what they actually are. So maybe I can go through a couple of really high profile kinds of examples. Um, probably people will be familiar with the Cambridge Analytica case. Um, and what we, we saw from that, the Cambridge Analytica case, we saw almost 90 million people um, of their Facebook accounts uh, were mined for data. And some of those people were sent targeted ads um, during the 2016 presidential election. So what was really interesting about this is that there was an app called In Your Digital Life, which uh, you know some people signed up to actually use, and friends and contacts of the people that signed up to that app weren't asked to get consent for. So there were many, many millions of people whose information was mined and used by this company. What did they use this data for? Well, some of those were targeted with respect to the 2016 presidential election. Now, why is this so harmful? 
Well, it's harmful because some people could be nudged to vote in particular kinds of ways, or their um, political persuasions could be invaded by, say, fake news or things that didn't happen. And if we care about democracy, we should really care about people trying to persuade people to vote in particular kinds of ways. Go through one more example, and then we can move on to the discussion. Uh, recently, I saw that there was a university that um, sent a rejection email to, say, 80 or 90 people that had applied for a university job. And those people were all put in the carbon copy kind of link. So everyone that applied for the job saw who else um, actually applied to that. Now, what's the harm with that? You might say, well, look, who cares? I don't care if someone else knows that I was applying for that job in Malaysia or Australia, wherever it was, and that might be fine. But there might be some people where they really do mind and they could be harmed if other people know that they've actually applied. Um, maybe a colleague at a university, you were trying to keep this a secret until the last minute. Uh, maybe there could be a relationship that's strained because of that. Maybe the head of the department finds out that you applied for a job and that puts your job in jeopardy or something like this. And the philosophically interesting thing here is about getting that informed consent. Um, are there risks associated with it? Do you actually agree to have it? Some people might love to be advertised to. Some people might like to be manipulated. But it always comes back to consent and what people are actually informing to. Great. Thanks, Adam. So I think you've really explained a lot of the harms that can come about through violation of privacy and not seeking informed consent. Um, but on the other side, might I not think maybe there are some benefits that come about through the kind of big data collection and um, the kind of access to data that companies have. So if I think, for example, of a couple of recent cases in the United States of, say, the Golden State serial killer being caught by police decades after the crimes were committed when it seemed to all intents and purposes that the crime couldn't be solved or the more recent case in Idaho um, that used DNA, DNA not submitted by the alleged killer themselves, but certainly by family members. 20 years ago, that wouldn't have been possible. And if we um, set the bar too high for privacy and consent, might we not think that we miss out on some of those benefits? So I wonder if you could speak to that. Yeah, this is a really good point. And I think here, this is why it's so important to really have a philosophical look at informed consent and why it's important. Of course, we have to be very careful with pushing these arguments to their absolute maximum limit. Imagine if we, say, got rid of search warrants, because search warrants can often take a lot of time, they're difficult to get, and the bad guys can get away, or we might not find some information. So therefore, let's get rid of um, search warrants. I don't think that's a very good uh, argument. You might also have a look at, say, let's allow the police to randomly go in and go into people's houses because there could be crimes committed there. And wouldn't that be a really good way of solving crimes? I'm sure the police would solve more crimes um, than they would now. But again, we have to ask ourselves, what are the consequences of doing so? And I think in both cases, if we get rid of search warrants and allow police to do that, it's a very different uh, and maybe not very democratic world that we're all living in. So I think, again, it's going to be a balance here. And I think we have to really think hard about where we want to draw that line there. A good example here is, I think, uh, during the NSA surveillance that Edward Snowden uh, famously revealed a lot about. Now, the United States, one of the reasons I guess they wanted to do this was to say stop future terrorist acts happening. And what was interesting after the Snowden leaks was that many Americans were very upset that they were being spied upon like that. Now, did this actually work? Well, as an empirical matter, I don't think it did. I don't think it led to any further cases of terrorism not being found. And what it did do is make a lot of Americans very I'm nervous about the state they're actually living in and what are the logical consequences of this kind of thing. So I think consent is extremely important and we do have to be very careful about looking at the, say, benefits of relinquishing privacy and really ask ourselves, what are we giving up when we give away privacy? And I think in that case, we give up a lot, maybe not for a lot of gain there. 
it sounds like there's really quite a few issues here. And I know from your writing that you've written about really three main problems when it comes to informed consent and online privacy. So I wonder if you could just summarise for us those three main categories. Yeah, for sure, Jackie. So again, there's three three that I've identified in the past, and probably there are other ones as well, but I think these are the three main problems that we're facing um, right now. I call the first problem the transparency problem. Um, so it's very difficult, I think, sometimes to know exactly what's going on with all of these companies. Um, so this can arise from several kinds of sources. So first of all, companies might be very reluctant um, to give away some of their um, trade secrets, if it will. They might not want to tell everybody what's going on because doing so could give away some sort of competitive advantage. Um, another problem can arise, and especially known as a black box problem these days, is that the internal workings of some of these algorithms are very, very complex, but sometimes there's very few people um, that know actually how they're going to work. Let me say a few things about the first problem. So often some people accuse Google um, right at the start of employing a kind of hiding strategy. Um, and so the strategy was that we should keep secret the kinds of information that we're collected, you know, give Google out to the public, this is going to be amazing, but don't be so public about the kinds of information that we're collecting. Because if you do, people might be a little bit reluctant to actually start using them, right? So it could actually be advantageous to companies not to give it all away. If Spotify started telling everyone what they were taking, or if Google did the same thing, the numbers might actually drop off. We don't know, but there could be an advantage to keeping it quiet. And again, that's very different to what we find with the medical kind of case, right? The doctor is under no obligation to sell some of these procedures a lot of the time. Whereas in this kind of case, it can be an advantage for companies to be a bit quiet. Um, so think about it. Would you be more inclined to use Gmail if they told you all the things that you were they were taking from you, all the ways your privacy was you know, violated? Probably wouldn't be as eager to use the the programs, would you? I think that sounds right, and I, I can certainly what you see what you're saying about the tension between disclosure in the medical case, transparency is a virtue when it comes to informed consent and a medical practice, yeah. whereas it might be a little bit of a hindrance for companies to disclose everything that they're learning about me. Exactly, exactly. Now, there's another transparency problem here, I think, and that comes from the sheer complexity um, of some of these programs as well. Um, one of the great things about machine learning is that it can maybe come up with novel kinds of uh, pieces of information, uh, but maybe not everyone really understands how that actually occurs. And furthermore, can you imagine trying to explain to everyone the internal workings of an algorithm as well? So they're difficult kinds of things to get your head around. The average person might not be well-placed to do that. Now, of course, you might say, the average person doesn't have to understand how triple bypass kind of works. But these algorithms can work in ways that are often very um, opaque um, to people, and that can make it very difficult as well. Let me tell you a little bit about the second problem, and that's the, the repurposed data problem. Um, so one of the amazing things about big data is that you can collect some today and tomorrow get some more, and then later on you can relook at that data with brand new algorithms, perhaps pair it with some more data sets, and get really new um, kinds of insights. But let's imagine something like Facebook likes. I'm sure you've liked things on Facebook before, right? Um, and you might say, Facebook um, gives you uh, the question, do you mind if we collect your likes? And you might say, sure, what's the issue? I like a picture of a dog, you know, I like a picture of a cat, wonderful. But let's imagine a few years later on, imagine if I did this a few years back, Facebook now can come up with a way to match your likes with other kinds of things you do on Facebook. And with all that data together, they can actually figure out how to target ads towards you. And maybe that technology wasn't possible at the start. That the, the data has been repurposed in other kinds of ways. And so what it really requires is for further consent. You know, Do you require um, consent to get the likes? Yes, you do. 
But a few years later, Facebook might have to get consent again because now they're using that data in a different kind of way. They have to tell you that their information can now be kind of used. So how will my data be used in the future? Um, and I think that when we go back to the informed consent model, we really have to keep getting that consent. And that really is very onerous for companies to do, I think. You're listening to The Philosopher's Zone. This week, Adam Andriotta from Curtin University in Perth is speaking with Jacqueline Bokes, also from Curtin University, about the ins and outs of informed consent, something that all of us are having to think about as corporations increasingly monitor our movements and gather our data across the internet and out in the world. So right back at the start, when we talked about medical consent, I spoke about a doctor when he's going through the triple bypass to maybe suggest some alternatives. Here's a pill you can take. Um, just go jogging in the morning, right? Maybe there are three different options, right? So there are often meaningful alternatives given in the medical sphere. When it comes to a lot of these consent forms that we read, we really don't tend to have a lot of power to negotiate with companies, right? So Google might say, we're going to collect this data, uh, or you don't have to use our program. So those are your options. And that is often not very... Uh, meaningful, right? If I don't like the way that Facebook operates after I've read their long consent form, um, I can reject it or I can accept it. I can't really say, you know what, Facebook, I want to use the program, but I'm not so comfortable with that area. And that seems to be another real problem as well, because you either use the program or you don't. And especially for, say, young children who might um, be very envious of their friends using a platform, they might not be comfortable or something, and there's a real fear of missing out because of that. So it sounds like you're saying in the absence of these kind of meaningful alternatives, it can become very coercive, especially perhaps given the power differences between um, companies that are collecting data on us. Or even, for example, if we think back to the start of the pandemic in Australia, um, with people checking into locations and sharing their location data in the hope that it would help reduce the spread of COVID-19, um, the power differential there can really be quite coercive, you're saying. Exactly. And that seems to be a real problem that, of course, is present in the medical sphere, um, there are ways in which um, the medical profession has learned to evolve and change to do with those problems. So it sounds like there really are some very serious risks and harms, and increasingly so. Um, what do you think could be done about all of this? What are some of the potential solutions? Yeah, I mean, I think there's lots of um, things for us to think about, and this is not going to be one solution. I think there'll be lots of different kinds of um, solutions we might look to. Well, certainly one, I think, is a legislative solution. So in Europe, we have the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, and this has been very, very important uh, in my view because it gives a lot of consumers rights. Um, so companies can't just do whatever they like um, anymore. Uh, it'd be great to see something like this in Australia and maybe other places in the world as well. But this is a, a great starting point, I think. Um, so companies, especially operating in Europe, um, have to take this document very seriously, given that it's entrenched into the law. There are other non-legislative, what we might call soft governance approaches, um, where people can kind of um, be good corporate citizens, if you like. And I think a good place to look at this is universities. So of course, universities are the kinds of places that collect a lot of data. Uh, if you've ever done research at a university, you have to get ethics approval. Let's imagine that you're interviewing people about the weather or something like this, you have to get ethics approval. Now, you don't have to get it as a matter of law, but if you don't get it, then maybe the journal won't accept you um, as a publication. Maybe your university won't be happy with you and won't give you promotion or won't accept that as a, um, a good publication. So 
Universities are very good. They already know about this ethics approval. And since universities already collect a lot of students' data, they're actually in a good place to start making the lead on this kind of case. They might say, we're not going to give it to advertisers. We're going to ask the students about what's happening to their data. So I think at the moment, if you ask big companies like Google and Facebook to make changes, they're unlikely to do much more than the law requires because they're going to say, why should we bother? But I think if we start seeing corporations or even places like universities that can set a good example, then suddenly a lot of people in society will start to be asking for it. Again, with a lack of transparency originally, many people are not aware of the extent to the problem. So I think we have places like universities to kind of set the pace. Then as a society, I think we begin to accept it, or expect it rather, uh, from some of those bigger companies. Another thing we might do is rethink the way that consent form works. If I have to go through a five-hour five hour to read consent form, it's unlikely I'm going to go through it. One really interesting field of research which is taking place right now are pictorial uh, contracts. So we're people that can't read, right? Now, if I'm, say, someone that can't read and I want to work as a picking job, I can be offered a pictorial contract and I can see what the requirements are from the job, I can sign it, and then I can understand what's going on. Even banks now, I notice, are starting to use these kind of pictorial contracts. So maybe images can be used in some spaces um, to make it a bit easier for us to understand what's actually happening. And then finally, perhaps a software approach, where we put some of our preferences into software. And maybe that software is able to be, I guess, generalizable to other kinds of programs. So I'm not the sort of person that wants my data going here. So I don't think there's one thing, some sort of magic bullet, but I think there's lots of different solutions like this that all together uh, might make the future of informed consent, especially in the big data space, um, a lot better for us um, as a society. And there's a couple of promising kind of emerging um, spaces here as well, which are, I think, good uh, examples of this. So think back to Apple, right? Apple is a big company. And in 2021, with the introduction of iOS 14, they actually started to force developers to ask for permission to track you. And I was really surprised and impressed to see this. Whenever you get a new app on your phone, the notification will come up and it will say, WhatsApp would like to get your data. And you can say, no, thank you. I don't want to do it. This, I think, is a great kind of first kind of step. Now, is it going to be the solution for everything? No. But it starts to get people to expect, hey, I have a bit of power here. I can make a choice about what this company actually takes from me. Um, and I think a lot of people were very happy to see that first step. And hopefully, this is really the first step in many. Another trend that I noticed, maybe you've noticed this as well, is a lot of sites are now asking for cookie preferences. So where you go to the news site or something else like this, um, we're now being asked to say give all the, the necessary cookies or only some of them are advertising. So I think this is a, a nice trend as well. Maybe we start to expect it and as companies recognize that, they have to change um, as well. Interesting. So a couple of positive trends and a couple of um, potential solutions as part of the mix. Um, I know you mentioned that these things change very quickly over time and the applications of data emerge very quickly. So how do you see the next few years? What do you think the future trends are that we might see? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, of course, one thing that's for certain is we're going to have an ever-increasing amount of data, right? Think about how many phone calls, WhatsApp messages, um, Instagram posts, um, you know, tweets, all those kinds of things, right? It's going to get more and more and more. Um, think about the internet of things. The more things connected to the internet, right? Your smart car, your smart fridge, smart watches, more of these kinds of devices, more and more data. Um, eventually, people will have smart cities, right, where everything is connected. And so once we have a lot of more of that data, I think the, the um, capacity for companies to nudge people 
to track them, to find out what makes them tick, will be ever, ever increasing. And so I think it's important for us to get the consent um, philosophically uh, right now so that in the future when it becomes um, really much more of a problem, we've got a place to do with some of these problems. The other thing I think will be interesting to follow are the technologies themselves. So we've talked a lot about websites and things like that, but one really interesting and emerging piece of technology is emotion AI, uh, which is a really fascinating type of technology which goes beyond facial recognition technology and actually allows um, cameras to detect your emotions. Right? So whether you're happy, you're engaged, whether you're upset or something like this. Um, so you might imagine that you're walking into a store and the cameras are equipped with this AI emotion technology, and you pick up, let's say, an item of clothing, and you look at it and you're upset. Or you walk into, um, let's say, Harvey Norman or JB Hi-Fi, look at a new TV, and you're really amazed by it, right? Cameras equipped with AI technology can work out your engagement, your excitement, your disappointment in products. And this, I think, will be very, very valuable for companies because usually when you walk into a department store, you're not really surveyed about what you think of all the different um, products they have, right? And so getting that bit of information from a company will be very valuable. So there I think it's going to be really important that companies are made to get consent. If you're not comfortable with walking into, say, a department store and your every facial reaction, your emotions to every product they have, then you should be within your rights to say, I don't want that. If somebody is happy with that, maybe they don't mind giving that away, then that person should be given the choice. But ultimately, it's a matter of being informed as consumers and to try to find out what information we have. Worst case scenario, no one has a clue what's going on and companies are able to do whatever it is they want. And that, I think, is a really bad place for them to be, especially considering what we said before about choice architects, right? The fact that with a lot of information, companies can get really good at targeting products to you. And if they have a lot of this information, then they're going to be able to coerce you into buying things to an extent in which we've never seen before. And not to get too doomsday kind of thing, but I think that's going to be a um, not an optimal place for us to be as a society where we're all being nudged into buying things really with not much information at all. Yeah, that's a really interesting case. And I think um, I suppose the um, my initial intuitive response, my completely non-technical, non-philosophical response is it sounds incredibly creepy, right? right? And if I think of those core elements that you were describing when it comes to setting informed consent as the high bar, um, the consent certainly seems to matter because the harms or the level of control and the power difference seem enormous there in terms of controlling what someone might buy, using their emotions to manipulate their responses. And the informed part seems incredibly important as well in terms of that disclosure and knowing what can actually be done there because that certainly seems far out of the realm of what I might expect someone might be able to do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, I think there are some kind of interesting cases that will start to come up in the next few years. So you might think of, say, one of the cases you might find in the classroom. Um, so it might be that students can be monitored to see how engaged they are. And that maybe isn't as creepy, but again, I think it's really important for us to lay down the foundations about informed consent there. Um, do students have to be have their informed consent before um, getting into that? Is the education use, use case a bit different from, say, a supermarket? Those are the kinds of questions I think we have to really think hard about now because in the future, um, they're going to be pressed upon us in, in quite a serious kind of way. So think about during COVID-19, a lot of especially university teachers and high school teachers were uh, doing a lot of online teaching. And what this kind of technology could do is actually monitor the attentiveness of the student. Um, so they can monitor if they're really paying attention and maybe nudge them in small kinds of ways, like turning up their volume 
uh, or maybe uh, making their screen flicker a little bit to kind of bring their attention back. So again, this is nudging, right? They're not saying, hey, Matthew, make sure you're paying attention. They might just raise the volume slightly or turn the screen on a bit. Um, so we might want to distinguish between those more gentle ones and sort of more of extreme kind of cases. But again, I think behind all of that, there does have this looming question about consent. And is the the question about how creepy they are versus non-creepy, or is there a more philosophical question that underlies all of them, which is, well, hang on a second, it doesn't matter how creepy or not, the ultimate question is about consent. And if a student hasn't consented to having their volume manipulated like that, then there's just something wrong about that. Adam Andriotta. He's a lecturer and researcher in philosophy at Curtin University in Perth. Adam was speaking there with Jacqueline Bokes, lecturer in the School of Management and Marketing, also at Curtin University. And this episode of The Philosopher's Zone was produced in collaboration with the Australasian Association of Philosophy. My thanks to them. My thanks to you for listening. I'm David Rutledge, and I look forward to your company again next time. Bye for now.